I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hey, everybody. Hey, welcome back. Hope all is well. Oh, yeah. Your world's feeling good. Weekend's here. Yeah. Uh, What's coming up? Um... Oh, I mean, there's a what this uh, election thing. There is an election. You should probably get out there and vote if you haven't yet already. Yes, please. Oh God. Exercise that vote. Exercise, exercise. Good, good for you. It's exercise. good for all of us. Right. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, we just got our tickets to Wakanda Forever next weekend. So yay! Can't wait for that. I know I'll cry. I just can't wait. <sighs> I'm so It'll be excited. so good. Are y'all watching Andor? Oh my God. Andor is so good. Honestly, they kind of raised the bar a little too high. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, everything's a disappointment <laughs> like from now Everything on. <laughs> Star Wars now has to at least meet the bar that has been <laughs> laid <laughs> by Andor. Man, I've been so frustrated with Star Wars lately. No. But this is so good. Ugh. So watch Andor and or watch something else while you're at it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I can't Every not. week. Every time. What do you want me to just leave that there? Come on. 
and or never start. <laughs> oh, I see. Now you're doing it. Oh, no. Now <laughs> I'm doing it. Well, I said we get right to it today because we got a big, chunky, sweet, sexy episode here. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Oh, my God. This one was suggested to us by a listener, uh, Tom Bray. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. But it's Tombre. Tombre. Or ta- Tambre. T- Tambre. Could, Could be, be Tambre. Tambre. Um, at Tambrin on Instagram, a very cool suggestion for Caress Crosby. Yes. I'm so excited for this suggestion. Thank you. Because Caress Crosby invented the bra in 1910. Oh. And that might be the least interesting thing about her. What? <laughs> she and her husband, Harry Crosby, lived wild expatriate lifestyles as Americans in Paris in the 1920s. Oh, boy. Please. Let me do that. <laughs> they published little-known but soon-to-be household name authors like James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Anais Nin, and Charles Bukowski, with illustrations from artists like Surrealist Max Ernst. Whoa. They helped popularize photography as an art form, and they fucked. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, did they fuck. Every surface. <laughs> Every surface. In, in the house. Every orifice, probably. Uh, oh, boy. Well, these two had an open marriage. They had topless parties, bathtub orgies, opium-fueled sex romps, and side pieces galore. Wow. And one of their side pieces would end their mad and extravagant life together. So let's hear about the doomed love of Caress and Harry Crosby. Yes, please. Let's go. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right. Now, most of this information comes from Jeffrey Wolf's 1978 biography, Black Sun, The Brief Transit and Violent Eclipse of Harry Crosby, and Linda Hamalian's 2005 biography, The Cromoisy Queen, A Life of Caressed Crosby. Cool. So two cool books. Check them out. Mary Phelps Jacob, always called Polly to distinguish herself from her mother, Mary, had the world on a platter. Born in Boston to a family that could trace its lineage back to the Mayflower, she moved in the highest circles of society. Wow. Even though her family wasn't ultra-rich, anything she wanted she could have for the asking. Do you think that her ancestors in the Mayflower, you know, they're looking down at her, they they survived such hardships coming right? across the ocean, and she's out here just, like, getting railed? <laughs> smoking opium and they're like ah yes my lineage continues <laughs> that's why we came to this why country. we came here <laughs> well like any blue-blooded debutante of her <laughs> stripe i guess you could say she attended great schools she learned dancing and riding and she partied at debutante balls all the time she slept from four in the morning until noon okay the podcaster life (laughs) (laughs) yep she was living that podcaster life but despite this privileged life of luxury she was not afraid to buck the conventions and in 1910 at the age of 19 she demonstrated for the first time her commitment to nonconformity. She was getting ready for yet another debutante ball, and she really wanted to wear a new fashion of gown. 
This one was like more flowy and filmy than all the like 1890s holdovers that a lot of women were still wearing. But the problem was the undergarments. Women were still wearing boned corsets at this time. And they're very rigid and uncomfortable. You couldn't really move freely Mm -hmm. in them. Uh, Even worse, they mashed Polly's impressive breasts together into one unflattering (laughs) monoboob. Nobody likes that. And she could see the lines of the corset through the fabric of her gown. So she's Mm. like, this just is not working at all. This is not the move. So she told her maid, hey, go get me a couple of pocket handkerchiefs, some ribbon, and some needle and thread. And together, they fashioned a backless brassiere. Um, where the ribbon was like attached to the inside of the shoulders of the mm-hmm. gown and like helped support her breasts okay. and everything. But she was totally able to like move freely around. She was 100% more comfortable. And most importantly, her dress and tits were looking fine. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so she literally created the over the shoulder boulder holder. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> She sure did. And it wow. sounded like she had some significant boulders to yeah. hold her. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, all the girls at the ball noticed. They were like, my goodness, your boobs are incredible. How come she gets to have two? <laughs> <laughs> so the day after the ball, all these girls bombarded her asking how she'd been able to move around so freely on the dance floor. They're like, you, you were able to take a deep breath. <laughs> How? You didn't cry one time. <laughs> well, when she showed them what she had made, of course, they all wanted one. Oh, yeah. And not long after, a total stranger came up to Polly and asked her to make them one of her contraptions, offering her a dollar for her time. Mm. And that's when Polly realized that her backless bra could be a viable business. Smart. Mm-hmm. What if... What if more women don't want to be exceedingly uncomfortable constantly? Hmm. You know, I might not be the only one who hates this shit. (laughs) So on February 12th, 1914, she filed a patent for her design. But then she got distracted by more worldly matters. In 1915, she married her long-term boyfriend, Richard Peabody. It was another blue-blooded, fabulously wealthy Bostonian who she had met at summer camp a few years before. In February of 1916, their first child, William, was born, and Polly discovered that Richard was a pretty indifferent father. At first, he was kind of excited to have a kid, but then he got bored with all, you know, the noises and needs that children are always having. He's like, they don't pop out ready to have a sensible conversation. Right. <laughs> How many times a day you got to feed this thing anyway? <laughs> I poured him a brandy and he didn't touch it. <laughs> no, no respect. <laughs> Richard only had three interests, basically. One was gambling, just not too unusual among the rich sprigs of society. True. Another was drinking. Richard was a pretty bad alcoholic pretty much his entire life. And his third interest, chasing fire engines and watching buildings burn. This one a casual came out of nowhere. Hobby. Yeah, we've all got our own hobbies. <laughs> At least he's setting fires. <laughs> yeah, true. Some of us stamp collect, <laughs> right? Some of us are into music. Uh-huh. Richard likes to chase fire engines. He's like, ash, it must all burn to ash. <laughs> This guy even convinced the fire chief to rig up a fire alarm bell at their house. So whenever it rang, no matter the time, Richard would throw on his best 
firefighter's outfit <laughs> that he kept. And then he would go and just sit down and watch the actual firefighters try and put out the flames. <laughs> I love that he like had a little, he like is cosplaying as a firefighter. Oh, yeah. He I'm must a have put it on too. Yeah, he must have put it on sometimes just for fun. Like oh, at yeah. night, he's like, I'm a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he was a volunteer firefighter for a minute. Okay. But they they said they had to let him go because he would show up drunk. And oh, they're like, God. You're not very useful. You're too flammable right now, Richard. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> Your breath is just making things worse. <laughs> Stand far away from the burning building, sir. <laughs> Then Richard enlisted in the army, first to go to Mexico to fight against Pancho Villa's cross-border raids, and then he came home briefly. Their second child, Pauline, was born in 1917, but by then, Richard was already in training to join the ranks of men who would fight in World War I. <laughs> Polly and the kids moved in with their in-laws in Danvers, Massachusetts. But when the war was over, Richard just remained in France for a while, just kind of enjoying the adulation of the French and his, like, bachelor lifestyle that he preferred to this domestic scene at home. Well, at some point in 1920, he did come home, but he was in and out of sanitariums for drinking and acute depression. So he was really trying to get better, but he mm. just could not seem to oh, that's tough. keep it going. Yeah. yeah. Now, Polly wasn't one to sit at home you know, pining and crying, okay? she In May 1920, she finally opened her fashion form brassiere company to manufacture her popular bra design. Nice. But still, those years were really lonely and difficult for her, and Polly's isolation did not go unnoticed. So on July 4th, 1920, Polly's friend Henrietta Crosby invited Polly to chaperone her son, Harry, and a couple of his friends to a dinner and a visit to an amusement park. Polly's 28. She's married. She's got two kids. By Boston society standards, she was like a respectable matron. You know, oh, she could do goodness. anything. That old 28-year-old maid. Oh, exactly. She's, oh, she's basically a grandmother. <laughs> Past her prime, but <laughs> she's got some life, life lessons to teach us, That's I'm right. sure. That's right. At 28. So much you can learn from her. <laughs> <laughs> she's seen it all. Inside, outside. <laughs> well, <laughs> But to Harry Crosby, she was a hot tamale. Oh, an my. An enchantress. A real cougar. Oh, yeah. He was like, wow. Who that? <laughs> he was like, what now? He was like, wow. I can't do it. <laughs> you know, I can't make an animal I know. Sound. That's why I wanted to hear it again. <laughs> now, Harry Crosby, he was just a young boy of 22, six entire years younger than Polly. And although he was a slight, pale man, he was handsome, charismatic, and a very intense individual. Because like Polly, he came from the upper crust of Boston. I say upper crust of Boston. I guess I should say upper crust of Boston. <laughs> um, his mm -hmm. uncle was the richest banker in the nation, J.P. Morgan Jr. Oh. Harry had a pretty normal affluent childhood, mm -hmm. and he probably would have lived a normal, affluent life. But everything changed when he was 19, and he volunteered for the American Field Service Ambulance Corps, like many of his elite peers. During the Battle of Verdun, he was close to the front, and he ferried wounded soldiers for three days without relief, along with his friend Spud Spaulding. In November, Harry was leading a few ambulances from the battlefield to the medical aid station, when his ambulance was hit by artillery fire and completely destroyed. Harry managed to escape completely unhurt, 
But Spud, driving a second ambulance behind Harry, was hit in the chest with shrapnel. Harry saved his life by getting him to a hospital for treatment. And that night, Harry was seen running laps around a track, just running, running, no apparent purpose or direction. You know that he just, you, you know what I mean? Like the, the adrenaline must have been so crazy. Oh my God, yeah. And then once you get to safety, you just can't sit. How you could know you possibly? I, like insane. Yeah, his brain must have just been going a mile a minute. And right. His body had to match. Oh my God. You know God. what I mean? I just think about that trauma showing up in so many little ways like that. Right. I mean, a guy bumped into me at Target the other day. <laughs> I couldn't sit still for a week. <laughs> chaos. My brain was just a battlefield. Yeah. <laughs> Harry later said that after that experience on the battlefield, he no longer feared death. Mm. In 1918, his team transported more than 2,000 wounded during the Battle of Orm, which won him a Croix de Guerre, making him one of the youngest Americans ever to be awarded that honor. After the war, unlike Richard Peabody, Harry couldn't wait to get home mm -hmm. back to the States. But he had to get his uncle, J.P. Morgan Jr., to intervene on his behalf. Yeah, most soldiers were just hanging out for a while, waiting, yeah. and they got shuffled around different places. Like, they didn't all just get immediately, right. you know, recalled home. Yep. But J.P. Morgan had lent a lot of money to the war effort, so I guess when he called, they were like, okay, whatever you say, Pierpont. Now, when he met Polly, Harry was studying literature and fine arts at Harvard, but he was finding it tough to be back among the starchy elites he'd spent his childhood with after his time in Europe and his wartime experiences. Sure. He couldn't stand what he called, quote, dreary, drearier, dreariest Boston. Oh. And, quote, Boston virgins who are brought up among sexless surroundings who wear canvas drawers and flat-heeled shoes. Damn. <laughs> Boy, he really had an opinion about the ladies of Boston. Like the ladies of Boston. Yeah, he wanted to live completely in the moment. He decided he did not care for risk or consequences anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's not that surprising that he would pursue a society matron like Polly. Um, that would have been a weird thing for him to do if he cared about other people's opinions. Right. But he did. So he's like, let me go for it. He was like. I don't care what people think of me. I'm going to date an old woman, a 28-year-old lady. Ooh, you're about to get slapped <laughs> on this side of the table. <laughs> and during dinner, Harry completely ignored the girl on his left, which was a major break with etiquette. You're mm. supposed to, like, talk for a while on this side, and then every every few minutes, everybody changes, and they talk to everyone on the other side. Ugh, is there, so like, a bell is, or like, something? I <laughs> think I think it's more of like a natural turn. <laughs> I had an idea for a party once because, mm -hmm. you know, like if we hold a party, like a bunch of people, you kind of get stuck talking to some of those. Definitely. Same. Sometimes there's some certain people that you get stuck talking to for a long oh, time. And you're God. like, I love you, but you have been Jesus. dominating my time. <laughs> I wanted to have a party where there was like a bell that went off every like 12 minutes and you had to shift conversations to someone else. I love it. Let's call it the Pomodoro party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of good because it's like, you know, oh, I went to this party. Oh, man, I caught up so hard with so-and-so, but I never got to talk to who's his face. Right. And then they had to leave. Yeah. I know. That and does happen who's his face time. is gone. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who's his face? And I don't even know his name. That's right. how much I need to talk to him. <laughs> 
so yeah, Harry's like, forget this other chick. And he spent his whole time talking to Polly mm-hmm. at dinner. And two hours after meeting her, he took Polly on the Tunnel of Love ride and confessed his undying adoration. Wow. Which I kind of think is funny. Like a 22-year-old would be like, I'll take her on the Tunnel of Love. Like that would be so <laughs> <True>. romantic. <laughs> and I wonder if Polly was like, oh, that is so cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> And he kept pressing her to meet him alone. And only two weeks later, on July 20th, she did. They had sex that night. And then two days later, she went to New York with him. And they spent the night together at the Belmont Hotel. When Polly described it later, she wrote, quote, For the first time in my life, I knew myself to be a person. Wow. Which, that's some amazing sex, I guess. I, true, <laughs> I mean, yeah. what was Richard doing? <laughs> <laughs> But elite Boston didn't feel like Harry felt. They were all about consequences. Mm-hmm. And to them, Polly had betrayed the trust that the public placed in her as a chaperone. Mm. And she corrupted a young man. Their too-public affair soon became the scandal of the season, which made life pretty uncomfortable for Polly. In the fall, Richard came home, finally, and she moved in with him to a three-story tenement house. While Richard went to Harvard to finish his studies, Polly was pursued relentlessly by Harry. She kind of picked up a little puppy dog. Mm -hmm. When we were alone, he sent her crates of flowers and boxes of toys for the children to her house. In May 1921, when she refused to see him, uh, Harry threatened to commit suicide if Polly didn't marry him. Oh, my Lord. The worst thing. The worst. Stop. <laughs> Never, ever do that. He pestered her to tell Richard all about their affair. And finally, Polly was like, oh, my God, fine. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard, here's what's going on. And Richard, without any prompting, was like, well, let's get a divorce. (laughs) I mean, I guess neither of them were very happy. Right. So he probably did. was like, great, let me be a bachelor. You run off with this, what'd you say, 22-year-old? Whatever. Jeez, have fun. (laughs) You want to have three kids? All right, that's your problem. (laughs) (laughs) But this divorce was pretty much unheard of at the time, and wealthy Boston could not believe that they would go through with something so scandalous. For months... Polly lived in New York City without seeing Harry to just kind of let the scandal die down. And finally, in February of 1922, Polly and Richard's divorce was final. Now, Richard ended up, he would go back into a sanitarium. He did finally get sober. Oh, good. And he remarried, and he started writing about alcoholism. In particular, he was drawing attention to the effects of withdrawal, which was not very well understood at the time. Mm. Um, He was the first person to assert that there was no cure for alcoholism. He said that alcoholics are either drinkers or teetotalers. They cannot drink in moderation. Okay. Uh, He was the first person to say that. And like throughout the 1920s, he treated alcoholics on an individual basis from an office in Boston that he opened. He used techniques involving like rigid scheduling and like trying to learn to manage your emotions with reason instead of drinking. Okay. All of these therapies that he kind of developed himself in a way, probably through all his sanitarium treatments too. He at least sort of pioneered them. Yeah. Yeah. He like put something together that was working for him. So I think he was like, I'm just going to share what's working for me. He allowed no religious or spiritual elements involved mm. he's like i, just, I want it you know very very pragmatic uh, pragmatic yeah, yeah very pra- yeah practical stuff right so addicts would come from all over the world for treatment and even though he was not a medical doctor they started calling him dr peabody huh. 
Uh, he published several articles. Finally, in 1931, he published his book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And it was read with serious interest by uh, Bill Wilson, who was actually in the same Army training camp as Richard. And he used that book as a guideline to start Alcoholics Anonymous. No kidding. Yep. And another Richard-trained therapist opened the first free clinic dedicated to treating alcoholism at Yale in 1944. So Richard, I mean, bad drinker, but he... He took that on, you know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. like, he really pioneered a lot of addiction treatment. Wow. I think that's cool. Sadly, Richard would relapse eventually, and he died of alcoholism in 1936. That's too bad. That is too bad. Um, although, interesting parallel, Richard and Polly, both mm -hmm. recognizing a problem, True. saying, I'm going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And then sharing it with other people once they find a solution. That is true. Yeah. You can see what, what maybe brought them together. What yeah. kind of quirks Spirits. of character brought Ingenuity. them together. Yeah. yeah. Now, meanwhile, Harry, who'd been working a bank job that his uncle got him for about eight months, went on a six-day drinking spree and quit the job. <laughs> I feel like the six-day drinking spree would have made sure he didn't have the job anymore. Uh, yeah, right, anyway. right. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe he's like, no, my uncle's J.P. Morgan. I better quit yeah, for sure. That's true. Now, his family arranged another bank job for him in Paris, and so he relocated in May. Polly followed him, and they lived together in Paris for a couple of months. But in July, Polly returned to New York City. She felt angry and betrayed because Harry had been messing around with someone else on the side. Hmm. And this would not be the last time. But Harry did propose to Polly in September, and then he bribed his way aboard a steamship where she met him at the customs barrier, and they went straight to City Hall to get married that same afternoon. Now, I gotta say, uh, he's like in May 1921 saying, if you don't marry me, I'll kill myself. Yeah. Finally, her divorce comes through, and he doesn't propose to her for another, like, eight months. Yeah, right. And then also is, like, messing around with somebody else on the side. I know. I'm like, well, what happened to all that? He's just a very dramatic person. He's, like, in bed. He's, like actively banging another woman and <laughs> yeah. he looks over at Paul and he's like, hey, if you don't marry me, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> She's like, do you want to finish first and then I we can talk about this? Talk. I don't want to watch this <laughs> show you're doing for me. <laughs> so two days after their wedding, Harry, Polly and Polly's two kids left for Paris and their new life together. And what uh ridiculous life it was <laughs> we'll find out more about their sex parties their questionable lovers and all their side pieces right after these words from bbc radio 4 britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip i thought in that moment oh my god we've summoned something from this board this is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Polly and Harry established themselves in Paris with all the artists in Montparnasse, and immediately started throwing off the yoke of their oppressive, blue-blooded society that they'd left behind. Mm-hmm. We are in Paris, baby! <laughs> Take off that brassiere. <laughs> Swing it around your head. <laughs> One of the first things they did was lose Polly's kids. Wow. Harry had courted them as much as he had Polly before the divorce, but now that he had to deal with them, he was totally uninterested. Oh, my God. So they, like, shipped him off to boarding schools, like, as often as possible. Harry convinced her in 1922 to close up her shop. He did not like her being tied to some manufacturing business. He thought it was low. Um, So she sold her patents to the Warner Brothers Corset Company for $1,500. Oh. Which is worth about... transfer rate. $26,500 today. Uh, doesn't feel like a lot. Not that much, because Warner went on to make $15 million off the bra patent in the next 30 years. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, it feels like she could have probably gotten a bit more money for that. Yeah. Also, I didn't know Warner Brothers was in the bra game. I, I wish some of their characters could get that much support. <laughs> hey! Hey-oh. Hey! <laughs> I wish their animation studio on HBO Max could get that kind of support. True! Ooh. 
want there to be an article that's like, Eli Banks drags HBO Max on his podcast. Boy, David Zaslav's a real bone corset, isn't he? <laughs> Rigid and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Unliked by many. <laughs> AmericaComesAlive.com does point out that there were similar bra concepts as Polly's out there when okay. she invented her bra. Because, like, women all over the world had to wear these corsets. So women all over the world were trying to figure out how to get rid of them (laughs) (laughs) and find a new solution. So in 1889, a French woman named Herménie Cadol created a two-part corset where the bra section was separate from the waist section. Oh, yeah, sure. And a lot of women would just wear the bra part. Okay. And just kind of leave off the cincher. But Polly was still the first to file a patent for her design in the U.S. And she would later write, quote, I can't say the brassiere will ever take as great a place in history as the steamboat, but I did invent it. Now, Harry worked this bank job that his uncle had gotten him in the Place de la Concorde, and Polly would row him down the river to work every morning, <laughs> which I I would move to Paris oh just to God. be able to take the river to work. That's what you I'm know? saying. Let me row myself to work. Talk about public transit, right? There's just a <laughs> river. You could swim to work. You mm-hmm. could take a little boat. Although it kind of makes me think of Ozark when they'd be on their little yeah. <laughs> motorboats trying to get Hey, the lake. sometimes water's the best way to get around. It's pretty dope. It worked for us for many thousands of years. It sure did. It still does. Uh-huh. Harry would wear a formal suit and carry a briefcase on this little boat, while Polly wore a very revealing red swimsuit. She liked to have those charms on display. Uh Oh, and she rode home alone and attracted all kinds of whistles and jeers from workmen who were appreciating the view. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine a lot of people wouldn't appreciate such commentary today, but Many would not. Polly did write in her autobiography that she thought the exercise was good for her breasts and she enjoyed the attention. So, hey. Fellas, that's not an invitation or, or a, a, a demonstration of how women are going to feel if you catcall them. Cat them. <laughs> exactly. We, we, you will soon learn, if you have not discovered already, that this is a unique woman here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in <yeah>. many ways. <laughs> It was less than a year before Harry quit his bank job to devote himself to poetry and life. He wanted to seize the day every day. <laughs> he really was like He that. wrote home often for money with excuses like, quote, to make up for certain past extravagances in New York or, quote, to enjoy life when you can. <laughs> or in one of his last messages home, he wrote, quote, in all caps, Please sell $10,000 worth of stock. We have decided to lead a mad and extravagant life. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. Oh, goals. I know. To be a spoiled rich boy from Boston, living it up in Paris. If anybody knows anyone that I can write that letter to, (laughs) go ahead and email me. Because I want (laughs) to. His family would scold him for being so spendthrifty, but... They always sent the money. So he never learned. Part of the reason they never tried to live on a budget, Polly and Harry, was because they pledged a suicide pact together. Oh. In case you hadn't think they were crazy enough already. (laughs) On October 31st of 1942, the Earth would be the closest to the sun in decades. And they decided that was the perfect time for them to jump out of an airplane together. And then have their bodies scraped up off the ground, (laughs) cremated, 
and then have their ashes scattered from another airplane. <laughs> They're like, we just want to spend as much time in the sky as we can. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I wish that they'd included the scrape their bodies off the ground because I feel like that that detail right there, I feel like would have like, been enough to say, you know what, let's not jump out of an airplane. That is somebody's job. If they're writing this in their will, somebody's got to go find them before they can get cremated. Oh, that's so true. Unless they unless they jump out of an airplane straight into a furnace. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They would have to have incredible aim. Incredible. It's like a point break thing with the two yeah. of them just like getting down. <laughs> maybe, they have, maybe they got wingsuits. <laughs> and they'll just dive into the fire. Yeah. What a what a choice. <laughs> it seems like they decided to spend the 20 years left that they had. In the most outrageous ways they could think of. So they quickly made friends with the art students who lived down the block. And when the kids invited them to one of their parties, they made quite a splash. From, from jumping out of an airplane? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no airplanes. Yeah. Okay. No, they both dyed their skin with red ochre. What? Harry wore a red loincloth and a necklace made of four dead pigeons. Ah. And he carried a bag of snakes. <laughs> oh, that's just my bag of snakes. <laughs> They're like, we asked for ice, but okay. <laughs> Is there a bag check? Here, hold this for me. <laughs> <laughs> Polly, meanwhile, wore a sheer chemise at her waist, a giant turquoise wig, and nothing else. That's, uh, this is just like Marge Simpson porn. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but red instead of yellow. But yes. right, yeah. <laughs> so true. Uh, and some some sources said she rode in on an elephant as well. Why not? Why not? And of course, the kids loved her toplessness. Ten of them <laughs> carried her around on their shoulders, cheering. Wow. And she was probably like, bounce me up and down. <laughs> uh, they gambled. They bought and ran racehorses. They raced carriages through the Paris streets. They wore the most uh, expensive clothes from the finest fashion houses. They even purchased an old mill outside of Paris that they called Le Moulin du Soleil, or the Mill of the Sun. Wow. And Harry went full emo. He wore all black suits. He painted his nails black, and he put a black silk flower in his buttonhole. Okay. So he would be very at home at like a My Chemical Romance concert. <laughs> now, it wasn't long before Harry decided that Polly was too prim and proper of a name for his wife. Oh. He's like, we live this mad extravagant life. You need a mad extravagant name. Sure. Like Harry. Like Harry. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So yeah, he convinced her to change it to something else. He wanted it to be uh, something with a C and an R in it. So that it would have alliteration. He wanted there to be a common letter that they could cross their names at. Okay. Crosby Cross is what he wanted to call I it. I see. So they briefly considered the name Clitoris. Oh. <laughs> before settling on the name Caress. Were they, which I approve. Yeah. <laughs> did they um, did they think the name Clitoris uh people would be too sensitive about it? Uh, they thought it would really get on people's nerve endings. <laughs> they were like, we could change your name to Clitoris, but then half of Paris couldn't find you. Oh. <laughs> and the other half might be rubbed the wrong way. Oh. So Caress Crosby became the name by which she was most well known. And they saved the name Clitoris for their dog <laughs> instead. I could never find that damn dog. <laughs> Where is that damn dog? Polly's like, I can always find it. <laughs> right. It's not that hard. It's right there in front of you. 
They told her daughter, Pauline, that the dog was named for a Greek goddess. Wow. So I'm imagining this like underage girl running like, clitoris, where are you, clitoris? (laughs) Hello, Mr. Beaujolais, do you know where my clitoris is? Oh, no. (laughs) He's like, ah. (laughs) I gotta get out of here. (laughs) Yikes. Whoa. Yikes. And then later, Pauline must have learned the truth and been like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, Caress and Harry also had an open marriage. uh, One of the lesser shocking things they were doing at this time. (laughs) True. Uh, But this was something that Caress was maybe not into right away. She was certainly surprised when she arrived in Paris, only to discover that Harry was flirting with other women. I mean, I... I would be surprised, too, if a guy was, like, pestering me for a year, saying he would kill himself if he couldn't have me. Right. And he finally, I'm like, here I am. And he's like, actually, I'm busy with another person tonight. Get back to you late in a few months. Like, what? In 1923, Caress introduced Harry to her friend. And that brings us to this episode's first side piece. Okay, I guess. Constance Crowninshield Coolidge Mm. was a firecracker, much like Caress, who loved gambling and anything risky. (laughs) Constance and Harry met and started having an affair. And after a while, Caress, even though she had introduced them, she could not handle this. She went to London by herself just to get away from these two, probably grossing her out all the time. Now, Harry told Caress that there was no way he could, quote, love her more than anyone in the world. This is absolutely impossible. Baby, I got so much love. I can't just give it all to you. There's just too much. Wouldn't be fair. Yeah, it wouldn't be fair to all the other ladies out there. <laughs> I got so much. Harry's got so much to give. Caress, baby. <laughs> but that does suggest to me that that's what she wanted. She clearly asked him to love her more than anyone else. Yeah. Why did he feel the need to say that? Yeah, right. So that's what makes me think she was like, oh, is that what you want? Kind of like ended up being like, all right, I guess I can get into that eventually. But at first she was kind of like, oh, I didn't well, like, or like, not what I was into. We can have an open marriage, but I'm, I'm, I'm number, number one. one, right? You love me more than anyone else. Mm, and he's like, Mm-mm. he's like, well, I mean, you know, we're married, but so oh, far, I don't like I don't like to put titles on things, you know, oh, I don't Harry. like to rank people. You bitch. <laughs> She's like, I don't care how you rank the rest. You put me at the top. Yeah, that's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, Caress wrote to her friend Constance and said, you know, your affair with Harry is kind of making me miserable. Mm. Constance. She's a good friend. She immediately broke it off with Harry, and Mm -hmm. the three of them remained close friends for life. But this was far from the last time that Harry would step out on Caress. Outwardly, Caress kind of appeared fine with it. And she had lovers of her own as well. But in her private papers, she worried all the time about Harry's loyalty. And Harry kind of had a bit of a double standard. He insisted on absolute freedom for himself. But at the same time, he would get jealous and yell at Caress about her own lovers. Ugh, my least favorite thing. Yeah. Don't do that. It's the worst. So you want a harem. You don't want an open marriage. You know, like, just be real. Right. And I'll say Caress also not really being real here either. If she is saying outwardly that she's fine with it and then writing in her journals like... I'm nervous he's going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Well, I, do, I like what you said, that maybe she was like, 
you know, the institution of marriage is dumb and we should right. be able to be, you know, free with other people and, and all of that. Like she yeah. might have had all that. But then she was like, but he won't say that yeah. I'm the one. Right. You know, right. that I'm like letting him do whatever he wants with his body. But his heart is mine. Man. That's what she really cares about. Maybe polyamory demands conversation mm -hmm. and agreements and honesty. You know, right. like that's what it needs. Caress once wrote about Harry, quote, he seemed to be more expression and mood than man. Yet he was the most vivid personality I've ever known, electric with rebellion. To know Harry was a devastating experience. Oh, there's, I feel like you come across those people in history where they're just like, they're so, you can't, you want to spend all your time with them mm -hmm. and you're miserable for it. Magnetic, yes. Yes. And selfish. Right. Yes. That's what I think, the two words I would pick to, to describe Harry. Yeah. If you let me have a third, I'd say melodramatic. <laughs> but I'll allow I think, it. <laughs> I think those are the two that people were like, oh, God, this right. guy is so cool. Like, he really does draw people like flies. He's very charming. Yeah. He made tons of friends. I mean, women loved him. He was forever having affairs and running out and seducing all these ladies. But it was like, oh, people just want to strangle you. <laughs> you just got to relax, Harry. <laughs> or just that like, and yet, because I'm so magnetized to you, it's making me miserable. Yeah. Maybe. You know, there's yeah. people like that, too. Mm -hmm. where you're just like the fact that I cannot get enough of you. And I don't know why, because you're mm -hmm. so frustrating. But there's just something about you that I just need more of all the time, even though it is poison. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But for the most part, their open marriage Seemed to be pretty fun and sexy time galore <laughs> for both of them. <laughs> they would host like small dinner parties from their giant bed. Cool. And then afterward, everyone would jump into their big, huge, sunken bathtub together. Okay. And refresh themselves with bottles of iced champagne. Drunken orgies were fairly common at the mill of the sun. One year, Harry let loose 10 snakes onto the dance floor. <laughs> this kind of snake. I mean, for real. He later described the night in his diary, quote, I remember two strong young men, stark naked, wrestling on the floor for the honor of dancing with a young girl. And I remember a mad student drinking champagne out of a skull which he had pilfered from my library as I had pilfered it a year ago from the catacombs. Oh, God. And in a corner, I watched two savages making love. And beside me, sitting on the floor, a plump woman with bare breasts, absorbed in the passion of giving milk to one of the snakes. Okay, Gross. now. Wait a second. <laughs> there was a part of me that it was even like, I don't think you'd ever find me doing this, but two naked dudes wrestling for the honor of dancing <laughs> with a woman. That's kind of cool. I'd you be know, like, I'm at a cool party right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm at a cool party right now. The student drinking champagne out of a dirty old skull from the catacombs. I'm like, you do you, dude. I am at a crazy party right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, the lady with the snake on her boob? Am I in Antony and Cleopatra right now? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why was she doing that? <laughs> so many questions. I, so many questions. Hallucinogens, I'm assuming? I'm assuming it was definitely drug-related. Now, at the mill, they added a race course. They would play drunken donkey polo on it. <laughs> yes. Okay, this party's cool again. <laughs> again, cool. A solid brass marine cannon would be rolled out and fired to announce special guests. Okay, I'm planning our my birthday party for <laughs> no. next month. 
I, this, this is happening. Incredible. The canon, at least. Right. I was thinking about our dinner party question from that listener mail episode. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I'm wrestling with whether or not I would I would invite to a party <laughs> Caress and Harry. Because first of all, I could never throw a party no. that they would find anything but boring. No. And B, if they were in charge of the party, I'm not sure I could hang. <laughs> I may be afraid of some of the shit they do. I'm going. I'm going to this party. Yeah, I'm going. <laughs> You're like, I can handle myself. <laughs> I will simply leave. When I'm not the afraid of snakes. Shows yeah. <laughs> and near the stairway at the mill of the sun, they left a box of watercolors next to a whitewashed wall, and they called it their guest book. Oh, my God. And tons of famous people signed this wall, um, including D.H. Lawrence, who drew a phoenix. Uh, Salvador Dali signed his name, Douglas Fairbanks, what? the future King George VI, <laughs> which is like, oh, King George playing some drunken donkey polo uh-huh. at the mill. Uh-huh. Okay, King George. Many, many more names. And I love that idea, too. Having a wall that people just draw on, like graffiti. Incredible. I love it. Incredible and, I mean, they knew so many cool people that, like, priceless wall, really, <laughs> if you could <laughs> cut it out and take it somewhere. <laughs> Now, when Paris or the mill got boring, somehow, <laughs> they would travel far and wide. They visited Lebanon, Africa, and the running of the bulls in Pamplona. They first smoked opium in North Africa in 1925, and that became a favorite pastime of theirs. Mm. One of the most exclusive opium dens in Paris was called Drossos. And once they got an invitation... They became regulars. Mm. Harry would sometimes spend days at a time there. Harry also loved cocaine and hashish, so really hitting both ends of the energy <laughs> spectrum with his drugs. I'm like, I hope he didn't like smoke opium and then be like, let's do some cocaine. Yeah. Like, we really can't. I'm going to wake back out. up again. <laughs> or maybe it balances. I don't know. I feel sober as a god right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, occasionally, they would drive out to the country with two other couples, pull their cars into a circle with the headlights on, and then all swap partners. Swinging. Super fun. Swinging Crosbys. Well, before you get too excited, (laughs) they also did some more objectionable things. As Peter Lyle in The Telegraph writes, quote, In their war on the repressive cruelty of social convention and the deadening impact of puritanical morals, the Crosbys could be very cruel themselves. In Morocco, Harry and Caress took a 13-year-old dancing girl named Zora to bed with them. Harry's one known homosexual experience, another holiday dalliance with a boy of unspecified youth, left him in intense, if predictably short-lived, raptures. At another time, Harry slept with a 14-year-old girl he called Nubile with, quote, a baby face and large breasts. Yeah, Peter Lyle also writes that their friends, quote, held rape parties and paid to see female circumcisions to add to their stores of scandalous anecdotes. Now that's gross. That's very uncool. Extremely gross. These parties suck again. (laughs) The the like the youth is is disgusting. Yeah. And then also the idea that you're like, wouldn't it be cool if I knew about the worst shit in the world uh-huh. and saw uh-huh. some insane pain in front right. of me and misery? Right. How cool would that be over a dinner party to talk about like what uh uh-uh. uh who do you what kind of cool do you think you are? That's so crazy to me that that, that was seen as like a cool thing to do. To 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 I mean it's it's the same thing. 
whenever you get into talking about um, hedonism mm-hmm. and libertine activities, stuff like that, right. it's all consent. I mean, that mm-hmm. is like should be the foundational line you draw. We can do all kinds of crazy shit, mm-hmm. but we cannot involve people who are too young to consent. We cannot involve people who are not consenting and we cannot, you know, mutilate people. I'm going to assume against their will. Yeah. I mean, I don't think many women want to be circumcised. Right. Um, The rape parties, I'm assuming that they were the ones doing the raping. I would assume I, so I would as assume, well. And I would assume that the person doesn't know that's what their party is or if they were like that... hiring prostitutes that were acting out of fantasy. Yeah, that's hard to say because there is consensual non-consent. Right, right. You know, that could have been a thing. Um, but this, given that they've already crossed these lines. I don't, yeah, I don't uh, have a lot of faith. I don't know, yeah. Right. So that, yeah, you know, crossing lines is cool until it's not, I guess, is the lesson in this paragraph. Right. Because we had a real fun time at the party. Uh (laughs) So I was like, oh my God, I hope no one saw me here. Hey, I don't want to sign your fucking guest Uh law, you weirdo. If I'm running for senator later, these pictures are definitely going to pop up. (laughs) But it wasn't all sex, money, clothes, and cars with them. Okay. Um, after all, Harry was a poet. Oh, how dignified. I know. So they also spent a lot of money publishing their poetry. Mm. And they had a really important small press in Paris. And we will find out a lot more about that right after these words. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. So two of their first three books that Harry and Caress published uh, were Caress's poetry collection, Crosses of Gold, and Harry's Sonnets for Caress. Hmm. Now, money, of course, is no object. Of course. So they use only the finest paper and ink. Um, the typesetting was flawless. They made sure there was no errors. And they had beautiful illustrations. Antiquarian books expert and actor Neil Pearson says, quote, they were publishing books of love poems to each other. Of course they wanted them to be beautiful. But unfortunately, we couldn't find any of Caress's poems online, but we did find a short one of Harry's. So let's go down to Poetry Corner to hear Harry Crosby's Unanswered. Why should I be subservient to fate? See the shows before a giant world. Poor little ship with little sail unfurled to catch the sun breeze at the harbor gate. Why should I be a coal within a grate of never-ending love? Why intercurled with some strange mermaid whom the tempests hurled far up the shore that mortals desecrate? Why all these whys and wherefores of the mind that strike like arrows on a marble floor beyond whose frigidness red lions roar to guard the sun I gave my youth to find? And why should drowning in the blackest sea be better than to worship at her knee? Okay. There's no Whitman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just, no, it's okay. Question. Just don't know why now is when I'm wondering this. They're still just coasting off 
Uncle JP's money at this point? Yes. Jeez, He apparently guys. got, like, what would be equivalent today to about $160,000 a year allowance. Wow, he did a lot with that. Well, that's he constantly overdraw his account. Yeah. So that's why he'd call back and be like, give me more of my, it was his inheritance that he was like, uh-huh. just let me have, because he really felt like, again, he's like, I'm planning to kill myself, so I'm never going to inherit anything. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, not, you know, the poetry is fine. It's nothing. I'm no analyst, good. but I wasn't moved. Yeah, it doesn't do much for me. <laughs> um, and Caress also was like, she called her own writing pretty pedestrian. She said, oh, I was okay. still rhyming love with dove, for oh. example. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's like, I'm just, just you know, mechanical of, of a poet or whatever. <sighs> So, yeah, it, it's not like either of these writers, as writers, they were not like culturally significant. There's a reason you don't hear their poetry. <laughs> they're not classics. Yeah. Um, but their their first few books were pretty well received. People liked them. I guess their audience score was pretty good. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you yeah, say. critics score low. <laughs> audience score. Well, the audiences were like, this middling. is all I was looking for. <laughs> all right. I, I had a good time. I'm not to think that hard. Right. But their real service to the arts was that they decided to expand their press to serve other authors. Oh. Now, Harry had become obsessed with the sun, which was to him a symbol of perfection, enthusiasm, freedom, heat, and destruction. Love it. And he even had tattoos on the soles of his feet. He had a Christian cross on one foot and a pagan sun symbol on the other, Uh-oh. which in my mind just looks like the sun from the Sublime album. Right, <laughs> that everybody in the mid-90s got tattooed yes. on their shoulder, <laughs> the, on the back of their that's shoulder. That's all I'm seeing. I'm sure that's not what it was, but that's all I'm seeing. <laughs> and his favorite color was black. Right. So they named their business Black Sun Press. Okay. As extravagant as ever, they kept up with their quality papers and inks, their painstaking typesetting. They published beautiful limited editions, like 300 copies of The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, (gasps) with illustrations by the German painter Alistair. What? Amazing. I mean, some of these books I would give a lot of money just to look at. Right. um, Just from the descriptions. They also published avant-garde writers long before they were well-known, like James Joyce's Tales Told of Shem and Sean, which would later be incorporated into Finnegan's Wake. Okay. um, Or Kay Boyle's first book-length work, Short Stories. Other names include Ernest Hemingway, who Harry once said, quote, could drink us under the table. Well, sure. (laughs) Well, I know, which I'm like, well, everyone knows that about Hemingway, but these two were partiers. (laughs) That's true. He was probably very surprised to learn that (laughs) anyone could do that. D.H. Lawrence is another person that they uh, published, and Harry actually paid him in gold coins because he thought he'd like it, and he did. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Ezra Pound was another one, Mm. among many others, uh, just tons, tons of names. And these books are just so lovely that they're kind of like uh, Picassos for book collectors. Wow, they're yeah. They're so rare because there's such limited qual- quantities. Mm-hmm. I-, I did a, just a quick Google search to see, like, if I wanted to buy one today, what would it be? And I found a rare copy of their version of Alice in Wonderland. Ugh. I know. With illustrations by avant-garde artist Marie Lawrenson for sale for $4,000. Oh, God damn it. That's just above my birthday budget. Damn it. Just above my birthday budget? You said thirty five hundred, right? I said four thousand dollars. But maybe no, you said haggle. my birthday budget was thirty five hundred. Oh, right? did I set your birthday budget? Yeah, yeah. You said uh, my I, my the gift I could ask for it could be no more than thirty five hundred. So we could stretch it to four, right? Um, 
I think I said $35. Oh. I feel like you're really adding a few zeros. <laughs> no, I that always means you're do. you're going to get zero presents. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I'll draw one myself. <laughs> yes, please. Please draw your version of Alice in Wonderland. I love Alice in Wonderland. I probably could. Now, Black Sun Press would evolve into one of the most important small presses in Paris at the time. And according to an article by Francis Booth on LiteraryLadiesGuide.com, they also, quote, bullied, blackmailed, and kidnapped Hart Crane into finishing his monumental poem sequence, The Bridge, which, along with Allen Ginsberg's Howell and William Carlos Williams' Patterson, is one of the great pillars of American 20th century epic poetry. What? Caress actually locked him into his room to make him finish writing once, which really reminds me of Willie and Colette, if you recall. Willie oh, once yeah. locked Colette in her room, or that was the story they told. Right. I mean, it reminds me of Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. You better turn this straw into gold, <laughs> She's like, Mr. Right Crane. Goddamn poem, Mr. Crane. Wow. Jeez. Is that? I mean, like, what do you say to something like that? You get one of the great works of art in the world. Mm-hmm. Born of torture. Like, I know, but tough. there's something I kind of love about this that, again, like, <laughs> This this um, rich people helping artists be artists because right, they're, right. they're like what they're doing is providing a place yeah. for them to be without having to spend any money and just make stuff. And that is such an important part of an artist process. You just need time and space. So that's what they provided. I mean, I I will say I'm not opposed mm-hmm. to a wealthy person mm-hmm. grabbing me off the street, throwing me in a van taking me to some posh castle in Paris <laughs> and saying, you're not coming out of here until you finish your screenplay. I know, right? All right. Maybe I'll finally get it You'll done. You'll have good food and sex parties and drunken donkey polo <laughs> whenever you want, but you have to finish that screenplay. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> I could use good. some drunken donkey polo to kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. My creativity. I feel, I feel like it would inspire something. Uh, it would change my screenplay, that's for sure. Because <laughs> that is currently not in there. But I could add it. But now, I could make it work. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Another artist that they helped develop, uh, pun intended, was <laughs> the photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, who would later be recognized as a master of candid photography and the pioneer of street photography. So, humans of New York, take note. Exactly. Really. Um, this guy was schooled in the arts and he was fascinated by the surrealists, but he didn't really care for his own paintings. And in the summer of 1929, his air squadron commander had placed him under house arrest for hunting without a license. Mm. He met Harry Crosby by chance one day and they bonded over their shared interest in flying planes and photography. Now, photography was still a pretty new technology in 1929 and Weirdly, a lot of people back then thought that this wasn't going to last or that maybe it was nice for portraits and group shots, but it had no artistic merit. Right. You know, TikTok is great for little dances, but you can't do anything good with it, (laughs) said the olds. Mm. Not me. I'm hip. I see the value. (laughs) Not me. (laughs) Um, But Harry, like me, was not one of these people. He saw the value. He thought this was going to be the next big thing in artistic expression. He and Caress even printed some of their books with photographs instead of illustrations. Mm -hmm. So Harry persuaded Henri's commander to place Henri into Harry's custody, and he took him to the Moulin du Soleil, where they spent the next few months taking and developing pictures together. 
Harry even presented Henri with his first camera, and he presented him to his wife, Caress, who Henri was very taken with. <laughs> when he discovered that the couple had an open marriage, woo boy, he was on that, like, uh, photography pun. Like a, like a... Like, a, like the mercury that sticks to the paper de develops the photo. Finger on a shutter, like a... Flash on a, like a, he was on that like a portrait on a tin plate. <laughs> uh, right. He and Caress, look, we're, we're taking no, it. No, I'm in it. He and Caress began an intense long-term affair. Ow! And that was good for Caress because Harry had a very intense thing of his own going on at the time as well. And that brings us to our next side piece. Idea. Josephine Noyce Roch was a rich, blue-blooded Bostonian who was about to marry Albert Bigelow in 1928, and she had traveled to Europe to buy the most beautiful clothes she could find for her wedding trousseau. What a life. I know, right? Now, Boston thought of her as fast and a bad egg. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I guess she was already kind of bold and flirty and stuff, so Ooh. they were like, uh-oh, this one might get in trouble. And she went on to prove it after she met Harry by chance when she was out shopping. Mm -hmm. He guess he grabbed her fancy right away because well, he, they... He probably grabbed her something right away. <laughs> well, <laughs> she must have liked it. Uh-huh. Because they met to have sex as often as possible during her eight-day visit. How often is as often as possible in eight days, might one say? I that too because i was like surely she's she's got things to do she's right. got family with her or something watching her how often could it possibly occur well how but, often can harry you know harry will make time i know Harry's like what i got to do no it's not the time i'm worried about oh. for harry i'm like how many times in a day can you do it pal <laughs> he had cocaine and oh yeah that's right stuff. it's the cocaine <laughs> it's the cocaine never mind he's that's like the don't answer. worry about old harry all right <laughs> <laughs> the biographer jeffrey wolf wrote quote Josephine was strong-willed and selfish, and she did not agonize much in deciding to become Harry's lover. Wow. Harry wrote to his mother about this. He was <laughs> apparently pretty used to confiding in her, just okay. like whatever he was doing. Which I'm like, good for Henrietta, I guess, but some of his letters must have been really hard for her to read, including <laughs> this one, where he told her, quote, I am having an affair with a girl I met, not introduced, at the Lido. She is 20 and has charm and is called Josephine. I like girls when they are very young before they have any minds. What? Oh, Lord. Uh, his mom should have been like, first boat over there. I'm coming in. Slap, slap, slap. Don't you dare. I raised you better. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I know, right? She's like, the nanny yeah. raised you and it was terrible. She probably told him, you know, marry a 17-year-old or some girl right. no mind. Funny thing also for, for a guy to say who rabidly pursued a woman six years older right. than him, too. So what a God, wow. this guy sucks. I think he sucks, too. I think I don't like Harry. But... No, you can't. I mean, you can't <laughs> like him. He's like having Harry. sex with underage people. Yes. He thinks women are dumb when they're young. And that's why he pursues them. Right. He's having rape part. Like, he okay. wants an open marriage, but he wants to yell at his wife for doing it. Right. Like, he's just got a lot of things that right. I would just, no, no, no. oh, I would have a real hard time with this guy. No, he's a shit. Uh, Harry called Josephine, quote, the youngest princess of the sun and also the fire princess. Okay. Now, their affair ended in June after she went back to the U.S. She married Albert Bigelow. 
done. Done Joe okay. Washington Carey. <laughs> okay. It was a nice eight day sex soaked romp. Ew. Yep, it sure was. I guess that's the only <laughs> way to we're say it. Done now. <laughs> nope, just kidding. Oh. <laughs> it started right back up again in August, so only a couple months later. Once Albert Bigelow was at Harvard as a graduate architecture student. Oh, jeez. Josephine, I guess, was like, let me fill up his class hours with something else. And according to Linda Hamalian's book, unlike Caress, Josephine was extremely jealous and she wanted to fight all the time. And she would constantly send Harry, quote, half coherent cables and letters like, when am I going to see you next? Where are you meeting up next? I want to see you right away. How dare you keep away from me so long? Do you not love me? Like, just always in his face. Now, on November 20th of 1929, the Crosbys traveled back to the U.S. to visit their families. And Harry and Josephine met up and they went off to Detroit together. Harry and Josephine checked into an expensive hotel as Mr. and Mrs. Harry Crane. And he's like, oh, I need a last name. Who's that guy I got locked up in my attic writing a poem? Crane, that's it. That's it. And for the next four days, they just smoked opium and had sex. They ate all their meals in bed. And on December 7th, Harry and Josephine went back to New York. Josephine planned to get home to Boston and Albert Bigelow, but Harry had a party to go to. Of course. Black Sun Press was about to publish Hart Crane's poem, The Bridge, and Hart was throwing a big party to celebrate. Harry partied with E.E. Cummings, William Carlos Williams, Malcolm Cowley, and many others at that party, which lasted until dawn. Probably a lot of big words being thrown around. And of course, E.E. Cummings, he starts talking and he just can't stop him because there's no punctuation. (laughs) Especially on cocaine. I bet he had E.E. Cummings on cocaine. Oh my God. I can't say that he definitely did cocaine, but I mean. Have a comma, sir. (laughs) Gotta take a breath. Uh, A little E.E. Cummings humor in there for (laughs) only other AP lit friends. Um, Now, according to Francis Booth on literaryladiesguide.com, the next night on December 8th after this party, Harry very suddenly told Caress that he wanted to move up the date of their suicide pact. Remember that? I know, right? What? She's like, what? <laughs> we, we just had fun. a great party. What is wrong with you? He wanted them both to jump out of their hotel room window the very next day and achieve what he called a sun death. Caress was like, uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> I th- kind of thought we were joking about that whole suicide pact thing. Like, that was just an excuse for us to have some wacky, crazy fun, maybe. <laughs> I'm still down to wait till 1942, whatever right. it is. Like, yeah, we got right. some time left. You're drunk anyway, Harry. Why don't you go sleep this crazy notion off? Right. And may- maybe she was like, he's just got a weird idea. Because th- this was, you know, only a few weeks after the giant stock market crash of 1929. Okay. yeah. yeah. His uncle's busy trying to save the economy and stuff. So everybody else is jumping out of windows. windows. Exactly. He might have just been like, this is the time. You know, I could see him getting real like worked up about a bunch of mass suicide events. Yeah. And then, you know, he did a bunch of cocaine and smoked a ton of opium at the same time. He's having all kinds of crazy ideas. You know, what's a great idea? A sun death. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) What is that? Then on December 9th, a poem arrived for Harry from Josephine. She had not left for Boston at all. She was still in New York staying with one of her bridesmaids. Oh. The poem was 36 lines long, and it ended with the line, quote, Death is our marriage. Hmm. That same day, Harry wrote his final journal entry, quote, 
One is not in love unless one desires to die with one's beloved. There is only one happiness. It is to love and to be loved. The next day, Caress met up with Harry's mother, Henrietta, and Hart Crane to have dinner before heading out to see a Broadway play, but Harry didn't show up. That wasn't really like him, but Caress wasn't too concerned. She just called a friend named Stanley Mortimer, and she asked him to check his studio at the Hotel des Artistes because she knew that Harry used it a lot as a rendezvous for his various love affairs mm. and stuff. So she's like, he's probably lost track of the time. He's with some chick. Will you go get his ass and tell him to get to Broadway for this play? So Stanley went, but the door was locked and no answer to repeated knocking. So he ended up getting some help to break open the door, only to find Harry and Josephine laying together in bed, fully dressed but barefoot, locked in an affectionate embrace with two matching gunshot wounds through their temples. Harry was still holding the pistol in his hand, and his wedding ring, which he had promised Caress would never leave his left hand, was found crushed into the carpet. Mm. Now, this, of course, made for some pretty incredible headlines from the newspapers, because you've got two rich married adulterers dying in an apparent murder-suicide, which is already enough to make a newsman drool. Mm -hmm. But in addition, they got to breathlessly report on all the unusual details, including... Harry's red painted toenails, mm. uh, his foot tattoos, and the lack of the suicide note. That that made speculation pretty rampant. Because was this a double suicide? Uh, maybe. But the coroner reported that Josephine died two hours earlier than Harry. So had she shot herself and then maybe he had doubts afterwards? Or had Harry shot Josephine? Peter Lyle in The Telegraph writes, quote, London's Daily Mirror speculated on psychological motives, while New York's Daily News blamed poetry and passion. Death itself had been the motive, others speculated, just as aspiring poet Harry's life had been his greatest artwork. Harry called cigarettes coffin nails and knew very well that the drugs he was using held dangers, while the couple's caretaker at their holiday home was also the village gravedigger Harry had erect a stone, inscribed... Caress and Harry in the grounds. So the guy was like obsessed with death. Yeah. And people were like, maybe that was enough. And he had been talking about committing suicide the night before. Right. Josephine's like, death is our marriage. Yeah. So. It sounds like he was really on one. <laughs> and <laughs> They were both on one. They were both on one. And, and probably a lot of drugs and alcohol. Definitely. They had definitely smoked opium and they had drank a bottle of whiskey as well. Yeah. So that's those were both found in the hotel room as well. So they definitely were not sober right. when they made that decision. But Josephine's family, including her husband, Albert, thought that Harry had tried to seduce her and then murdered her when he couldn't have her. But this, I, I don't know, it sounds like wishful thinking. Yeah. Al Albert had said that they were totally devoted to each other and he had never married. He, he had never met Harry. Uh-huh. Um, but... I mean, if they had been, they it was almost a year that they had an affair right. going on and she's sending him all these telegrams and shit. So I feel like he, he just wished that was true, but. Or was just oblivious. Or totally oblivious, yeah. yeah. She was good at keeping a secret, I guess. Right. I don't know, but. Well, Albert Bigelow went on to design buildings for the 1939 World's Fair. And along with his second wife, Sylvia, he became a Quaker and one of the most prominent protesters against nuclear weapons. He was also a freedom writer early in the civil rights movement. 
Once, he was beaten with chains, and another time, the bus he was riding on was bombed in Alabama. He died in 1993. Pretty amazing life. Yeah. To lead after all this. Yeah. Being disappointed in love so young. <laughs> well, man, Josephine sounded like a real handful. Okay, ho- Sylvia sounds like a better match for <laughs> yeah. Albert Bigelow. Yeah. Now, Caress, I mean, had to be devastating to oh, see this. Right. Because first of all, she was always worried about Harry not loving her enough. Yeah. Then she finds out that he's like, I want to die with the person I love and dies with someone else mm-hmm. after they already had a suicide pact going. Right. And find her ring in the carpet. So strange. Like, just so many ways of being horrible to her in yeah. the end, yeah. in my opinion. Terrible. The first thing she did was get her children to her. So she got her son and her daughter, brought them to her and they both went they all went to the mill together and uh-huh. she just lived there for a few months alone but listen she was far from done with her extraordinary life um she didn't die until 1970 wow, so she okay. has many years left to contribute to the arts um she continued to publish important authors and artists in paperback like Henri Matisse Pablo Picasso, Dorothy Parker, Anais Nin, so on and so forth. She actually was even about to publish a paperback translation of La Vagabond by Colette. Oh, no way. uh, When her company ended up closing because she could not convince booksellers that paperbacks would ever be popular. Oh, my God. Oh, she was so smart and they just would not believe Uh her. Why wouldn't anyone want their book to weigh 14 pounds? (laughs) For real, like, what do you mean? (laughs) No one would want a paperback. I think they were like real, probably associated with like dime novels or something. Sure, some yeah, cheap yeah, yeah. Shit. So they were like, no one will read a real book that's in paperback mm-hmm. or whatever. But I did wonder. I thought they they must have had so many similar social circles as Colette that I'm surprised their names never came up in each other's stories. Right. So I'm glad there was some kind of connection. She also had a decade long affair with a black boxer named Canada Lee that started in 1934. Even though, of course, there were many laws at the time against interracial sex or marriage. Mm-hmm. So she would meet him in secret for lunch in Harlem. And when her brother said that he had a problem with it, she refused to speak to him for 10 years. Good. And Canada Lee was actually the only one of her lovers who never asked her for money. Oh, nice. Um, even when his nightclub was going under, he wouldn't let her rescue it. Oh. She also married a guy 18 years younger than her who did nothing but run up her bills, go on years-long solo trips by himself, and drink. So fortunately, she eventually divorced him in 1941. Okay. She did have to leave Europe during World War II, and she was distressed to learn that the Nazis had made their base camp in the Moulin de Soleil, painting over her incredible guest book wall. No! So frustrating. Even though, ironically, this wall included Ava Braun's signature on it. It was Hitler's future wife, of course, so... Ironic. Uh Uh-huh. I guess Ava was hanging out at those parties. Ava was hanging out with those parties, apparently. makes them a little more uncomfortable than they already were. Well, Ezra Pound ended up being pretty big into fascism as well, so... So I guess everyone was better than Ezra. Get anybody, out. Just anybody? leave. No, I didn't even get a chuckle. <laughs> Just leave this All house right. forever. Caress also helped an author named Henry Miller support himself by ghostwriting pornography. Oh. This guy had gotten a nice advance to write some smut, but he didn't really like writing it. And he knew that <laughs> Caress was writing pieces of erotica for Anais Nin's smut club. So he asked her for help. She apparently churned out 200 pages with no problem. <laughs> And the publisher was like, yeah, more, please. She's probably like, what did I do that one time uh-huh. at that party? Chapter three, the donkey polo. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, she bought a castle in Rome and made it into an artist's colony where they could stay for a season or a whole year at a time just making stuff. Again, it cannot be overstated how important that is for yeah. artistic development. Yep. So I admire it, even though she herself said it was a very uncomfortable place that she would hate <laughs> to spend any time in. <laughs> uh, Anais Nin once said about her, quote, Caress Crosby enters with the buoyancy of a powder puff. Caressing voice. Was that how she gained the nickname of Caress from Harry Crosby? Her fur hat, her eyelashes, her smile, all glittery with animation. The word on her lips is always yes. And all her being says yes, yes, yes to all that is happening and all that is offered her. She trails behind her like the plume of a peacock, a fabulous legend. Wow. Caress Crosby. Caress Crosby. I mean, look, saying yes to everything can have such amazing things. And also, Ooh. it can have some really bad things. Yes. Uh, that's how you end up with Ava Braun at your parties. <laughs> 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 Which, again, I do not want my photograph taken. You know what? I think, actually, at the end of this, uh, I have to skip the party. Oh, yeah? You're not going. Uh, look, it was it was all fun and games. We're drinking out of skulls mm -hmm. and wrestling on the floor. <laughs> and then there's minors. Uh, there's mm -hmm. uh, some weird mutilation happening. And also, oh, who's that over there? Oh, it's just Adolf Hitler's wife. Come on. <laughs> well, before Even, she was I know, married, future but... <laughs> wife, still. I'm imagining that I have my current knowledge oh, okay. being invited to in this party. Case... And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. A hard pass. It does feel like an Epstein's Island type thing. Yes, There's so I've been many like that. names that you're like, oh, how cool to party with them. And then when you find out what's going on you're on like, the oh, island, you're like, no, 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 I'm no, no. so glad my name is not attached <laughs> in any way. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I I really, it was, was such a cool suggestion. Thanks again to Tambray, Tambur, Tambrim. Uh-huh. However you say it, let us know. <laughs> I'm sorry if I mutilated it, but thank you for this suggestion because they just had a really complicated life. They weren't, they're not people that it's easy to decide one yeah. way or another about. I mean, they did a lot of terrible things. They did a lot of cool things. Yep. Really rich and layered and complicated and terrible and awesome. I mean, just interesting. Wealthy Americans and Europeans in mm -hmm. the early 20th century yeah. were all that. I mean, they were doing such cool stuff and also like the worst things. I know. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. To, just to bring it back to Andor, I did see somebody say that what they were loving about the show was how much they would they were trying to show how bad people can be good and righteous right. and very like I'm trying to do the right thing and good people can be very ruthless and cruel yeah and that just saying like you just the actions alone is it's really hard to just judge someone right. by that their individuality right. and how are they working in the system they're in and all that sort of thing it was just really interesting and I was like that's how I'm feeling right now yeah I feel like we feel that so often on the show and I, and yeah. I think any historian you know right. Not that we're like historians, but we're <laughs> sitting here reading a lot of history and you do find that it's really hard to just call someone a good or a bad person. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there's certainly that like a drop of bad. Oh, yeah. Can really make can really, you know, tint your whole color into something pretty bad. Very true. Um, so there's that. But also, you know, some fascinating things in the world would never have happened mm -hmm. without some of these awful people, which sucks. Or they would have. With good people. Well, that's and what if, you don't know, just I be guess. Like, 
I wish they had just been good people and mm-hmm. not. Or it would have just been different art. Yeah. You know, like, right. That's the thing that that sometimes I have to catch myself where I'm like, oh, but how could we live without Ezra Pound's book or whatever, you know, whatever. Anais <laughs> Nin, you know, whatever. How could we live without Ezra Pound? I mean, we could be fine without <laughs> right. Ezra. But you know what but I mean? I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> but like James Joyce or what, whatever, you know, right. whoever your favorite author is, that somebody helped usher them into the zeitgeist yeah. in some way or another. And you're like, well, thank God they did that. I wouldn't change anything because I would not want to not have this book available to me now. Right. But like what was not made otherwise yeah. that you might cherish as much. Right. Because you don't know about the other thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just Super. time and how it works. Sure is. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. It was a wild ride. Craziness. Wild. Truly wild. So bumpy. I, yeah. It must be what it must be like to play a game of drunken donkey polo. <laughs> yeah, now we all know. <laughs> Go through the Crosby's life. <laughs> uh, let us know how your game of drunken donkey polo went. <laughs> Listen to this one. We'd love to hear from you. Please. And please send us more suggestions like these. These really uh, give us so much to work with. And yeah. They're so fun. We love hearing them. Yeah. Uh, shoot us an email, ridicromance at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Diana Might Boom. And I'm at, oh, great, it's Eli. And we're both at Riddick Romance. Yeah, so follow along, uh, reach out, and we'll catch you all the next episode. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.